I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Uh, today's guest is Ovik Roy. He is the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a nonprofit think tank focused on expanding economic opportunity to those who least have it. He trained as a scientist at MIT and as a physician at Yale Medical School. In 2012, Ovik joined Mitt Romney's presidential campaign as a healthcare policy advisor. By 2014, Ovik was Forbes opinion editor. In 2015, Ovik ran the foreign and domestic policy shops for Texas Governor Rick Perry's presidential campaign. He writes frequently about healthcare economics and healthcare policy for numerous publications, including Forbes and National Review. He serves on the boards of advisors of the Bitcoin Policy Institute and SAT Center, and on the board of directors of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. Ovik, thanks for joining the podcast today. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Good. So let's maybe start with big picture stuff. Can you frame the problem of American healthcare for us? How big of a problem is healthcare spending in the United States? And what do we get for all that money relative to similarly developed countries? Well, there's two really big, almost existential problems with healthcare in America. The first is that healthcare is the biggest threat to Americans' living standards because the cost of healthcare keeps going up at a faster pace than wage growth and income growth. And the end result is healthcare is a bigger and bigger percentage of everyone's paycheck. And over time, that means that your actual take-home pay goes down. And that that's just on the premiums and, and things like that. When you factor in the deductibles going up, deductibles for a lot of people have tripled over the last 10 years. People th- you know, think they have health insurance, but they're paying more and more for the out-of-pocket side of things. So healthcare is increasingly unaffordable. It's always been expensive in America. Everyone who, who listens to your podcast knows that healthcare is more expensive here than elsewhere, but it's increasingly a real threat to America, a greater number of Americans living standards. So that's problem number one. Problem number two that, that gets a little bit less attention, relatively speaking, is that healthcare spending by the government is the single biggest driver by a very wide margin of our debt and deficit. Basically, our, our budget deficit and our long-term debt, which is now at 30 plus trillion dollars, is driven by the fact that we spend more on on healthcare, subsidizing healthcare for Americans because it's so expensive than than we do for anything else, and that that amount is growing. We're at a point now where, within a decade, the amount of money we spend servicing the interest on the federal debt is going to be greater than what we spend on the military, on on the Defense Department, and that's crazy. And that's all driven by Medicare, Medicaid, and the other big healthcare programs at the federal level. That's not even counting what goes on at the state level. And so I, it's not clear which of those problems will come to, 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 to kind of blow us up first. Will it be the fact that Americans basically rebel against the incredible unaffordability of their healthcare and their declining living standards? Or do we have a real economic crisis, Greece style, because people at a certain point stop lending money to the United States? And we can get into that if you want. But as you mentioned in, my, in your intro, a lot of the work I do nowadays is around things like Bitcoin. And the reason I got interested in Bitcoin is because Bitcoin's related to healthcare. People may not realize that, but the whole design and kind of rationale or raison d'etre of Bitcoin is that 
if and when America and countries like America aren't unable to finance their debts, the U.S. dollar and other currencies like the U.S. dollar will struggle to retain their value. And we can get at that too. But, but that economic crisis is coming if we don't fix federal health care spending. In a lot of your work, you've pointed out that Switzerland and Singapore might have actually more market-oriented solutions or more market-oriented healthcare system than the United States. And yet they've still achieved some something resembling universal healthcare. How difficult would it be for a country as big and as diverse as the United States to follow a model like that? Well, first of all, it's not something resembling universal healthcare. It is universal healthcare. In in Switzerland, everyone has health insurance and affordable health insurance. Their coverage rate is near 100%. In Singapore, same thing. And we can get into the, the specifics about why uh, those systems are universal coverage, but they are. Nobody really disputes that. I, I think what a lot of people don't realize, and we can get into the reasons for this too, is that the debate in America is, is this weird debate where when we talk about universal health care or health coverage or health insurance, we talk about it from a very specific perspective, which is most Americans, when they think about the term universal coverage, they, they associate it with single-payer health care, where the government is the sole insurance company like in Canada or the United Kingdom. But that is not, isn't, that is not the only model of universal health insurance around the world. We have a project at FreeUp, my think tank, called the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, where we go through and compare at great detail the healthcare systems of the 32 wealthiest countries in the world by income per capita that are that have a population above 5 million. And what we found is that the five best healthcare systems in the world, which didn't include the United States, by the way, but all five of those countries were countries that had universal health insurance without using a single-payer model. Number one in our list is Switzerland, as, uh, as you alluded to. But the other, uh, five, uh, other four countries were, and I don't remember the exact order now from our most recent rankings, but it was like Germany, the Netherlands, Ireland, and Israel. Those are all countries that have universal health insurance using private insurance, something like Medicare Advantage or Obamacare, but it, a, a more functioning version uh, where you, ha- you have a regulated private insurance product that's subsidized for lower income people who can't otherwise afford it. And, and, the, and those products work pretty well. And, the, uh, and, that's, and that's a thing that you know, if you want to think about what's the secret sauce for a Swiss style system, why does it work? A big part of why it works is that they don't subsidize everybody. So in the US, we spend massive amounts subsidizing wealthy people's health insurance for no real reason. In Switzerland, they only subsidize health insurance for vulnerable people, people who have pre-existing conditions, people who are sick, people who are poor. They don't subsidize the cost of health insurance for wealthy people. And as a result, their system is much more fiscally efficient than our system. And that enables a lot of the, the economic performance. So Switzerland, you know, their federal income tax rate, their top federal income tax rate is like 11%. So, you know, you hear a lot of people on the right say, oh, we can't afford universal coverage. It's too expensive. Well, actually, if you look at Switzerland, their tax rates are a lot lower than America's and they do just fine. Is this something that we could do here in the United States? Yes. I mean, obviously, uh, healthcare reform is hard and systems like Switzerland and Singapore are different from the U.S. Singapore in particular is very different from the U.S. in the way their, their system works. But the Swiss system and the American system are similar enough that one can envision 
over, say, a 30-year period, if you, if you make the changes gradual enough, an evolution into something that looks like Switzerland. And in fact, that's the way the free op healthcare plan, which we call Medicare Advantage for All, works. And that is that if you take, take the Obamacare approach to health insurance, where you choose your own plan, in theory, there are a bunch of insurers competing for your business, and there's a, a graduated or sliding scale of subsidies that gradually phases out as you go up the income scale, but you're, you're protected if you have pre-existing conditions. There's a basic package of benefits that all plans are required to cover. That, imagine if that was a plan that, was, that everyone was on, not just people who today don't get insurance from their employer or the government, but imagine everyone was on that plan, uh, approach or more people were. Imagine a world in which instead of getting insurance from your employer, your employer gave you uh, a chunk of change to go buy your own health insurance in a functioning marketplace that actually wasn't overpriced and where the plans had reasonable deductibles and where you had a reasonable access to a broad range of, of, of doctors and hospitals and providers. That's a system that could really work well. And imagine, uh, furthermore, that the way we offer health insurance to people over 65 is not that different from the way we offer it to people under 65. You know, Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage works this way. All, you know, we're getting to a point soon where a majority of seniors are going to be on Medicare Advantage, not the traditional single-payer Bernie Sanders version of Medicare. And so it's funny because you hear Bernie Sanders talk about Medicare for all, but the, the thing he doesn't mention is that 45% of the people on Medicare today get private insurance to deliver their Medicare benefits. They're not getting it directly from the government. And that percentage is increasing every year. People are voting with their feet for private coverage because they are experiencing a better product with Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage plans, doctors, a lot of doctors get fussy about Medicare Advantage because they don't like the fact that they deal with the prior awe or they deal with the network design and all this stuff, doctors will, you know, will always say, ah, oh, I can't believe you like Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage is terrible. And, and, and my response is physicians are a little spoiled by traditional Medicare because traditional Medicare just basically doesn't care. They say, okay, doctors, you can, you can, you can prescribe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. We're not going to fight you. you know, we're going to just write the check. Basically, Medicare, traditional Medicare, the taxpayer is an ATM and the doctors are the recipient. And they can basically charge whatever they want. And that's why there's a lot of fraud in, in the Medicare market. They can't charge whatever they want in terms of prices, but they can, they can bill for a lot of different things. Whereas in Medicare Advantage, the insurers kind of push back on you. And that's why doctors don't like it as much. It's not as easy, but it's much more economically efficient. And the end result is premiums are lower. There's an out-of-pocket maximum, unlike in traditional Medicare. And people are getting a better experience. They're getting vision and, and, and dental benefits from it. They're getting gym members. They're getting all these extra bells and whistles that traditional Medicare can't afford uh, to pay for. So private, the private market is actually winning. And so one can envision, if you just th take that big picture view, imagine a world in which Medicaid, which underpays doctors, is more like the Obamacare exchanges, where the Obamacare exchanges themselves are improved with lower prices and better networks and better quality. Imagine a world in which the employer-based market, instead of your employer choosing your insurance plan for you, get to choose your insurance plan with those funds. And then a Medicare program that's more like Medicare Advantage. And you put all that together and you can start to, if you squint enough, you can start to see a more coherent system in which private insurers are competing for patients' business and for doctors' business, by the way. And you only have to subsidize the more vulnerable 
part parts of the population, which makes again the system much more fiscally efficient. It means that the subsidies you need to in, to achieve universality are much smaller than they are today. So this is the secret point that a lot of people don't realize. Our healthcare system is so messed up that you could actually improve it in a way that advanced both progressive goals and conservative goals at the same time. You could achieve universality, which progressives really care about, and you can massively reduce the amount of spending by the government, which conservatives care about. You can do both of those things at the same time if you enact the right kinds of reforms. What do you say to the libertarian argument that this isn't truly your proposition, your proposal is not a truly market-based or like fully market-based proposal. And they might say, well, a, a fully market-based proposal without these kinds of subsidies would be far superior and be more efficient in some way. How do you respond to the libertarian? I'm sure you've encountered libertarian arguments against your your position. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's basically two kinds of libertarians. There's the libertarians who exist purely in theory, who have a theoretical view of the world and say, okay, yes, in theory, a world in which there are no regulations and no subsidies and, and no nothing and no government involvement would be a, a less expensive system. And, 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 and that's true. And then there's like the libertarianism of the real world. So as I mentioned, we run an analysis every year, which you can, your listeners can read or, or, or uh, encounter and, and visit at whyhi.freeop.org, W-I-H-I.F-R-E-O-P-P.org, where we actually look at the 32, again, the 32 wealthiest countries in the world with populations over 5 million, many of which rank well above the United States on international indices of economic freedom, like Switzerland. And they don't have libertarian healthcare systems, but they have more libertarian healthcare systems than we do. They have fewer subsidies and fewer regulations than we do. And so, the, 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 and, and you have to remember that unless you're going to live in a libertarian dictatorship, people get to vote on what kind of healthcare system they want. So yes, if, 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 if you live in a libertarian dictatorship where King Mises can design the healthcare plan and nobody else gets to, gets a vote, then yeah, you, you go to town and design whatever theoretical plan you want to design. But in the real world, in democracies or representative governments where voters get to decide what kind of healthcare system they want, what voters have consistently shown in the freest countries in the world where the voters have a habit of caring about economic and individual freedom like a Switzerland, what have they voted for? They voted for a system that is very free, but not a libertarian utopia. It's a system in which the government uh, involvement is not zero, but it's as light as possible to achieve that universality. And, and the way I would describe it is like, you know, in a libertarian, a theoretical libertarian might say, we shouldn't have any public schools, right? We should only have private education. And if we did, education results might be better for a lot of people because you wouldn't have all the kind of dumb things that we do in our public school system. You know, I, I could see some of those arguments making sense, but try running a, a, a presidential campaign or a congressional campaign or a senatorial campaign or a gubernatorial campaign on, oh, because I believe in freedom, I'm going to abolish public education. Like, you, you know, you'll get 2% of the vote. So, you know, libertarians can, can say all they want, but what percentage of the electorate are libertarians? 5%? probably, something like that. So again, if, if libertarians believe in the marketplace of ideas, libertarians are losing 
in the marketplace of ideas. So you have to be more realistic about what the marketplace of ideas will enable and allow and support and what the marketplace of ideas in a democracy or a representative government or republic will enable is a system that is reasonably free but not a libertarian utopia. And that's what we've got to look to. And what is it, if you actually try to say, what is the what is the most free market or most economically free healthcare system that a majority of a democratic population will support? It's the kind of system that I'm describing. From the other end, from the maybe not so Bernie Sanders end, but the maybe typical liberal case against your position. There was a there was an article in the Times a few weeks ago or a month ago, something like that, about Medicare, the Medicare Advantage program. And according to federal audits, eight of the 10 biggest Medicare Advantage insurers submitted inflated bills. Four out of the five largest insurers have faced lawsuits that they overdiagnosed customers and committed fraud. And this has occurred to the point, and the article claims that Medicare Advantage overbilling exceeds NASA's budget, exceeds the EPA's budget, and it exceeds the FBI's budget. So this doesn't necessarily impugn the design of Medicare Advantage or that there's some value in having more personal choice and means-tested program. But from a liberal perspective, they may say, well, this casts doubt on how much private insurers should be involved in this sort of thing. And then they can point to, well, you know, we need a Medicare for all, not a Medicare Advantage for all. How, how do you respond to something like this? How do we address this kind of uh, what the article makes out to be this kind of insane amount of fraud in your conservative case for, for universal coverage? Well, uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, how much waste, fraud, and abuse is there in the traditional Medicare program? That the article doesn't really address. And the estimates conservatively, conservatively, are that in the traditional Medicare program, no less than 10% of the federal spending is waste, fraud, and abuse. You know, the, the, the classic stories that you've seen on, you know, or you can look up on 60 Minutes, where somebody creates a basically a fake storefront in Florida where they're billing for knee replacements and the and it's not a real doctor's office, right? But they've, 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 they've pulled up a lot of security, uh, social security numbers and just started billing for them and Medicare doesn't check. So, you know, a lot of people on the left say, well, Medicare, traditional Medicare is more efficient than Medicare Advantage because it has no overhead. Well, that's like saying my bank is more efficient because they don't have security guards, right? Like, are you going to park your money at a bank that doesn't have security guards because they're so efficient that they don't have any overhead? No, you're going to be like, that bank's getting robbed. I'm not putting my money there. So not all overhead is bad, right? Some overhead is good. And the overhead that insurers use deploy is to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse. Clear cases of fraud and abuse, like, like you know, the, the storefront example I made, I mentioned, but also examples of waste where a doctor prescribes a really expensive test or drug or procedure that isn't warranted by the actual clinical profile of that patient. This happens all the time because your listeners who go to medical school can vouch for the fact it's still, it was true in my day and it's true, it was true in your day, Aaron, and it's true today. How many classes did you take in medical school that taught you how much a, a treatment algorithm costs? How, how many questions on the boards did you have on how much a treatment costs? Zero. Zero. Right? You're always taught do what's best for the patient irrespective of cost. And that can sound beautiful and poetic and high-minded until you get the bill. Right? And then people start to get mad. 
And so that's where that is the role of insurance is to actually come in there and say, or the consumer ideally in a, in a truly libertarian system, but that's where insurance is able to be more cost effective than a government run system. And so are there examples of companies maybe you know being aggressive in how they code something or bill something, et cetera? It's possible for sure. And, and you, one can examine, uh, imagine that and happening and one can document that happening. But what is the percentage relative to the spending of that kind of uh, waste, fraud, and abuse on the private sector side relative to on the public sector side? And um, it's pretty clear that the public sector waste, fraud, and abuse is much greater because all we have to do is look at the performance of Medicare Advantage versus the performance of traditional Medicare. And what you see if you compare them side by side is that the financial and clinical value of the services that Medicare Advantage plans are delivering to patients is far greater at lower cost than what traditional Medicare provides. And if there was so much fraud and abuse going on that um, that that Medicare Advantage was unworthy of being side by side with traditional Medicare, then it would be more expensive. But it's not. It's cheaper. Let's talk a bit about Medicaid. In your book, How Medicaid Fails the Poor, you point out that in the average state for every dollar that a private insurer pays a primary care physician, Medicaid pays 52 cents. So as a result, primary care doctors are 73% more likely to reject Medicaid patients relative to those who are privately insured. And specialists are 63% more likely to reject Medicaid patients. Can you connect the dots for us? How does our current system hurt those on Medicaid? And what might be some common objections to this? Yeah, and that's like a, a nine-year-old book looking at 13-year-old data. So the, the, those disparities have gotten worse over time. As any physician knows uh, who takes Medicaid patients, that's the problem. And everyone who deals with the Medicaid program as a physician knows this. This is not, you know, this is not some sort of like Nobel Prize discovery that I was documenting. This is this is something that every physician understands and knows about. And yet somehow this is something that the broader country doesn't know about because people on the left who have an ideological attachment to the Medicaid program in its current uh, form don't want that information to be widely understood. But the fact is the Medicaid program today is failing the poor because a lot of doctors don't take it. And, 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 and so you may think you have health insurance, but when you actually try to get a doctor's appointment, you can't, or it's very hard. And you're already, as a, as a poor person in America, dealing with a lot of other challenges in your life. And imagine layering on top of all those challenges you're dealing with in your life, having to spend 20 hours on the phone just to get a simple doctor's appointment. It's really, really hard. Imagine you're a single mom with four kids and you live in an unsafe neighborhood and you're dealing with all sorts of problems, paying your rent and affording your other costs of daily living. And on top of that, you have to spend 20 hours on the phone trying to get a doctor's appointment. You're going to give up, Right. And you're not going to take, get that doctor's appointment, especially if it's for a chronic problem. And so what happens with Medicaid patients is that those chronic problems, or maybe it's an undetected tumor, get, get, get untreated, get undiagnosed. And so you wake up one day and you have stage four breast cancer and it's over, right? And that is the problem with Medicaid. It's an incredible tragedy. And, and really, it just, it just, it's just it's appalling, really, that we tolerate the dysfunction and outcomes of poor outcomes of the Medicaid program when we have alternatives that could serve those patients so much better. 
Right. And the Affordable Care Act seemed to try to expand Medicaid coverage. Yeah. What has happened since that expansion? Do we have data on how things have gone since then? So yeah, so we 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 do. Um, I mean, we, we don't we don't have as many we don't have as much data on the outcome side. We have some because of the work that that I uh, did, I guess, uh, highlighting Medicaid's poor outcomes. There was kind of a cottage industry of people trying to propagandize Medicaid and say that its outcomes were actually not as bad as as the fear mongers would uh, would assert and fear mongers in, in air quotes. But the actual results continue to be worse because the disparity in reimbursement rates continues to be pretty significant. And now you have, in terms of the coverage expansion from Ob- Obamacare, almost all of it comes from the Medicaid expansion. It doesn't come from the Affordable Care Act exchanges, the healthcare.gov type product, because all the healthcare.gov ended up doing was taking the old individual market and replacing it with a new, much more expensive individual market. There isn't a lot of added coverage that came from from that. Some people may have gotten coverage that didn't before, and others got priced out of the market. Net-net, it's about the same, if not a little bit of a decline. But a lot of people got coverage through Medicaid. And the the one thing about the Medicaid program is that it has no deductibles. The deductibles and the cost sharing is de minimis. So people like that piece of it. They like the fact that they don't have to pay any premiums. So, So those parts people like. But then they wake up and they realize they're not getting the treatment or the care that they need, and, and that over time becomes a real problem. So the enrollment has been significant. Another thing that's happened is that during COVID and continuing to this day, the president has, uh, both presidents, Trump and Biden, have had a, what you might call a state of emergency around COVID, a public health emergency that has effectively allowed them to suspend the normal checks around eligibility. So you may not actually technically be eligible for Medicaid because of your income or other factors, but the federal government has basically prevented states from checking whether you're eligible for Medicaid or not. So a lot of people are on Medicaid today who actually are not eligible for it based on their income, but are staying on it because of those low premiums and low deductibles. And as a result, they're not getting the kind of insurance that might actually get them more access to care. And this also balloons the federal cost or federal budget in a way too, right? Because it's not it's not just states paying for Medicaid; it's the federal government paying for Medicaid. So it's Absolutely. combined. And so if if states can find ways to shift certain care that they provide into the Medicaid program, then they get free money from the federal government in a sense. Is that right? Yeah. So there's this big uh, kind of accounting thing. It's it's the way I'd analogize it is, you know, you've, you've all been in, we've all been in situations where you go out to dinner with like seven of your best friends and one person orders a salad and the other person orders like the 20 ounce steak. And you're looking around the table and it's like, well, wait a minute, we're, if we're all going to split the check here, I might as well order the most expensive thing on the menu because, you know, there's an advantage for me in doing so because we're going to split the check. And that's kind of how the program works between the states and the feds on Medicaid is the states say, hey, for every patient we have on Medicaid or every person we have on Medicaid, you know, the the federal government is paying between half and and three quarters of the the cost. So we have an incentive to run up the tab because it's basically, it's like a stimulus check. All this money comes to the federal government, the more we spend on Medicaid. And that, you know, if you're a governor who's not running for re-election or you're retiring at the end of, you know, a couple of years, you're like, that's great. You know, that makes me look good as, as a politician and my successors will have to deal with the hangover from that. And so it creates a lot of perverse incentives. So one of the things that we talk about at FreeUp is 
to actually swap out, first of all, the Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid expansion and put all those individuals on the exchanges, a reformed version of the exchanges that actually works. So you're spending roughly the same amount, but you have much better insurance that actually stays with you as your income goes up or down. Right now, what happens is if your income is below 100% of the poverty level, you're on you're on uh, Medicaid. If it goes above 100% of the federal poverty level, you're on the exchanges or 138, depending on the state. And 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 so you have to keep switching your insurance plan based on your month to month income, which is crazy. Uh, so it's it's a much simpler system for patients, for individuals. If you just on the same kind of insurance, your network doesn't change, your plan doesn't change. Instead of it churning based on arbitrary uh, barriers about your income, so swap out. I'm not saying don't have health insurance. I'm saying be in a continuous system of health insurance with private coverage where you're not having to change your plans all the time. And you'll get better access to care. Doctors will actually take your coverage and and those you, you can catch those lumps in your breast before they're stage four uh, metastatic. Let's shift gears and, and talk a bit about the hospital systems, because you, you've pointed out in the past that nearly all hospital mergers meet the threshold for antitrust investigation. Pretty and much. After yeah, after mergers, there's almost no effect on health outcomes for patients, which blew my mind. And, and it, indeed, it would seem that this relates to the fact that hospitals charge double the amount to private insurance companies as they charge Medicare. It's triple, more than triple now, actually. It's more than triple. Wow. It's more than triple now. On average, the, the latest study from the Rand Corporation, which has been tracking this more closely than anybody, which came out last May, they found that on average, hospitals were charging people with private insurance 3.25 times more than what they were charging Medicare. Um, so it used to be two times. Now it's three times. Again, that's not sustainable, right? And you know, and I say this particularly to my my libertarian or more conservative friends. Like, if you don't want a single payer system, you don't want a public option, you don't like those kinds of ideas, you better pay attention to this because if if the only solution on the table is <laughs> is for the government to impose a set of price controls on hospitals, then it's going to happen because eventually people will not put up with being exploited by the hospital system. And one of the one of the interesting things on the left side is, you know, on the left, you hear a lot of rhetoric. We talked before about, you know, Medicare Advantage plans. You hear a lot of rhetoric on the left about, well, the problem with the healthcare system is the profit seeking. And you should, you know, we should never think about profit when it comes to people's illnesses or, or sickness. And I, I get that on a Hippocratic Oath level. I understand the sentiment. I understand it's a beautiful, poetic sentiment. But you know what? Three quarters of all hospitals in America are nonprofit, quote unquote, but they're the ones doing the ec economic exploitation. They're the ones whose CEOs are making $10 million a year, and they're the ones charging 15% more every year for the same care and using it to, to pay their CEOs incredible salaries, build these splashy new wings at all their hospitals, you know, fountains and galleries and all that's, those are nonprofit hospitals that are so-called nonprofit hospitals. They, they actually care about profit a lot. They don't call it profit. They call it contribution margin. If you look at their financial statements, they're tax exempt because they claim to be nonprofit, but they're not nonprofit. They act in, in, in they act no differently in terms of their desire to make money than a so-called for-profit uh, hospital system. And so that's the ideological blind spot on the left the ideological blind spot on the left is that that entities that call themselves nonprofit, the left tends, tends to just give them a free pass and assume they're the good guys. 
uh, and particularly when it comes to hospitals, that's definitely not the case. Do we then start taxing these nonprofit hospitals? How do you, how do you think about the solution to this? Yeah, I think I think revisiting the the structure of tax exemption for large monopolistic hospital systems is absolutely something we should consider. You know, we have a in our healthcare plan, we have a um, proposal to to effectively use a, a form of antitrust enforcement to say if you're a, a big monopoly hospital that has majority share of, of your lo- of your local area, particularly in metropolitan and urban areas. I mean, rural is a little bit of a special case because you're not going to have a lot of hospital competition in a, in a rural area, right? Because you just don't have the capacity for it. But in, you know, majority of the country lives in metropolitan areas. And in metropolitan areas, there's no excuse for monopoly hospital systems. You should have smaller hospitals all over the, the, the metropolitan area that you can go to and compete with one another for your business as a patient. And, and we should be ensuring that that's the case because these large mergers have led to over a, several decades have led to a system where, you know, one hospital system dominates everything. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a Yale guy, as am I. And, you know, a few years back, Yale New Haven, which already owned basically almost all the state of Connecticut, bought St. Raphael's, the only sort of competitor they had in the New Haven area. And now that's all part of the same system. And so what does that mean as a patient? That means that Yale New Haven can charge whatever it wants. And if you're a health insurance company, you have no bargaining power. Because, you know, if, if, if Yale New Haven says we want to charge 20% more for a CT scan or a, a knee replacement, where are you going to send your patients? You're going to send them, you're going to send them to another state? I mean, what are you going to do? Right. And so that becomes a huge problem. Children's hospitals are the are the worst in this regard. So children's hospitals are almost always highly specialized. And they're the only children's hospital in that particular city, right? Compared to like conventional, you know, a, a general hospitals, you might have multiple general hospitals, but a children's hospital is a specialized thing. So like in Seattle or in Philadelphia, the children's hospital or in Boston, right? There's only one major children's hospital. And, you know, you, you have to have the children's hospital in your network because God forbid, you know, you have a kid who needs brain surgery and where's he going to go? And and it's kids. What? what? You're going to keep this children's hospital out of my network? We're a nonprofit that saves children's lives. How, how, you, you, your insurance companies are going to care about money and dollars and cents when we're talking about children's lives? And they, they dine out on this and then basically charge you exorbitant prices for very basic care, and we all pay for that in the end. How did we let this happen with, with hospitals? Because... Th- there seems to be such a major concern, especially now looking at these big social media uh, sites and, and tech, the tech industry, about monopolies and how do we break monopolies? How do we, you know, how did we let this happen with hospitals? Well, I will say that the Biden administration, this is, I think, where they're doing some of the best work on healthcare policy is they are they have an, a federal trade commission po- approach to policy where they are really trying to tackle the problem of a monopoly power across the economy including healthcare so i'm i'm very encouraged by that and that's one of the things about what the biden the biden administration is doing that i think is really constructive how did we get here it's a long story but it really starts with as as do all of our healthcare problems they start with a very simple thing that happened in world war 2 so in world war 2 the men are off to war the young men are off to war and the Roosevelt administration is worried that there are no uh, men in the workforce because back then women didn't work. So if the young men are off to war, the labor force in the, domestically has shrunk 
And that means that as employers fight over the, the, the fewer workers that are around, they have to pay them more. And by paying them more, the, those higher costs in terms of labor costs get transmitted in the form of higher prices, what economists call a, wa- call a wage price spiral, and you have massive inflation. So the, the, the Roosevelt administration was really worried that you're going to have spiraling inflation because of scarce labor leading to higher labor prices, leading to higher prices for goods and services. And so they instituted a schedule of wage and price controls where literally there was like a list issued by the federal government where if you were an auto mechanic or a barber or whatever, this is how much you could get paid per hour. And after the war was over, they, they phased that out. Um, but what happened is employers were like, okay, you may, not, you may be telling me what I can pay my auto mechanic, but you, you, there was a loophole. They didn't say how much I could pay for fringe benefits like health insurance. So all these employers started saying, hey, I'm, I may be regulating how much I can pay you in wages and salary, but I'm not regulating how much I can pay for your health insurance. So I'm just going to give you a really generous I'm – gonna, I'm going to compete for the workforce by giving you a very generous health insurance package. And all of a sudden, the war's over, and all these people have insurance through – health insurance through their jobs because of this policy. And then in the Eisenhower administration, the IRS decided that while your, your wage income was taxable, both for income taxes and Social Security and Medicare taxes, or eventually Medicare taxes in the 60s, but uh, health insurance was not taxable. And so we created this massive disparity where if I give you 100 bucks in wage income, you pay income taxes and Social Security taxes on that. But if I give you 100 bucks in health insurance, that's not taxed at all. It's exempt from taxes at the federal, state, and local level. And so what happened? Employers started competing, again, for workers by offering more and more generous health benefits. And by generous, I mean not in the sense of like, we're just going to make sure your, your hospital care is covered, but a lot of things that you would normally not think of as needing being needed to be covered by insurance started getting defined as services to be covered with health insurance. Imagine if your your car insurance, not just covered if you totaled your car, you crashed your car, or your car got stolen, but imagine if your, your car insurance also paid for gas, and it paid for oil changes and, and wiper fluid. I guarantee you that if car insurance paid for your gasoline, gas prices would be 10x what they are today, because you wouldn't care what the gas prices are, You'd be, you wouldn't, and you wouldn't even see the gas prices on the, on the side of the road, because you don't care what the gas price is, it's covered by your insurance. Right. And so that's what's happened to healthcare is that we didn't care what health insurance cost for a long time or health care cost for a long time because we weren't paying for it directly. Somebody else was paying for it. We were paying for it in the end, but we thought someone else was paying for it. And it wasn't just that the insurance companies were paying for the health care. It was that we weren't paying for the health insurance directly. Our employers were. And so you ask the average worker today, how much do you think is being taken out of your paycheck every month? to pay for your health insurance, most workers won't know, except for the ones who are self-employed or the ones who are actually the CEOs who are making those decisions or the HR people who are making those decisions. So most people don't know what they're paying for health insurance. They don't know what's being taken out of their paycheck to pay for health insurance. They don't know how much that doctor's visit costs. All they know is that they think they have health insurance and that when they go to the doctor, it should be covered. And that is a completely irrational, worst of both worlds kind of system where it's not a free market system. It's not a socialized system. It's the worst of both. We subsidize healthcare for everybody, but we have no accountability for the cost or price or value. And physicians have been living in a kind of bubble where they know that there's something wrong, 
with the system, but they don't realize how much they are actually perpetrating and perpetuating what's bad about the system. You know, you, you have a lot of older docs, ah, you know, it's, it's so terrible that I have to deal with all these insurers and the prior, prior auth and all this kind of stuff. Everyone complains, right? But what people are not as sensitive to in the physician community is how much worse it is if you're a patient who can't afford your healthcare bills, right? That's a lot worse than being a doctor who makes 400,000 bucks and has to argue with insurance companies from time to time. So from a policy standpoint, it's only going to get worse for physicians under, if the system stays the same. Because if I'm a politician and I have to decide behind between millions of my constituents who are struggling to afford basic healthcare costs and a handful of physicians who are complaining that they have to argue with insurance companies, who, whose side do you think I'm going to take? Right. Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor offered an alternative explanation. And I know you sort of disagree with this. I want to hear why. They, they wrote The American Healthcare Paradox. And in the book, they argue that excessive healthcare spending is large, this is their thesis, largely a result of poor public health and social services investment. Can you talk about why improving public health may or may not help reduce healthcare spending? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, uh, with all due respect to Elizabeth and Lauren, that's totally wrong for several reasons. One, if you actually do these international comparisons and you look at countries that have similar public health outcomes to the United States, they also have lower healthcare costs. Uh, so the, the price of healthcare in the United States is not driven at all by public health. It's driven entirely by these economic policy decisions that we've made over an 80-year period and created all these perverse incentives for price increases. Uwe Reinhardt, the late Princeton economist, had a famous line. He said, it's the price is stupid. And he actually compared, in a famous health affairs article in, I believe, 2004, he compared the utilization of healthcare services by a bunch of different countries and showed that actually in the U.S., we utilize hospital and healthcare services a lot less than a number of other countries, and yet our healthcare spending is more. Why is that? So the average length of stay in a U.S. hospital is significantly shorter than it is in Europe or Asia. The, the percentage of branded pharmaceuticals that Americans consume is far lower than it is in other countries. We use more generic drugs than other countries do. So if we use way more generic drugs and we have shorter lengths of stay in the hospital, and if you compare countries that have similar rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease to us, or patients in those countries that have similar clinical profiles to those uh, morbidly uh, morbid uh, patients in the U.S., what do you see? You see higher prices for the same services and the same types of patients. And so it, it, isn't, it has nothing to do with public health. I, I will say this, though, that our health outcomes in the U.S., uh, our poor health outcomes relative to other countries, are in, in significant part driven by the legacy of slavery and segregation. So if you actually look at our health outcome statistics and say, we're just going to exclude the descendants of slavery and segregation from those statistics, we'd look a lot like a lot of these other countries we compare ourselves to. Uh, and so there is a structural problem there with, with the descendants of, of slaves and, and, the seg and particularly in segregated areas and just the legacy of, of the black experience in America, where that is a specific problem that has proven to be very difficult uh, to, uh, to recover from. So we spent a lot of money on Medicaid and other programs to try to, try to assist people in affording health care, uh, but that hasn't, alone hasn't worked. And, and so 
we we have not come up with uh, brilliant ideas or successful ideas on how to how to overcome the legacy of slavery and segregation for the specific kind of disparities of health outcomes that affect the African American community in the United States. And again, particularly descendants, I want to I want to make a distinction when I say descend, descendants of slavery and segregation. I, I say that specifically because. People of the African diaspora who immigrate to the United States don't have a lot of the same health outcomes as the descendants of slavery and segregation do. So it's not specifically about race in, a, in some sort of genetic way. It's actually about a more sociological experience of being in the descendants of, of slaves in segregated America. So that problem is, is a significant one that is kind of unique to America or at least relatively unusual uh, in the world. And that's something we haven't done a good job with. It's quite upsetting. Where does big pharma stand in this, in, in this sort of craziness of, of healthcare expenditures? Because I think on the left, people might say it's all big, you know, big pharma or just, and, and insurance companies, it's all profit motivated. And that's why we have this issue. And on the right, I think people are very willing to turn a blind eye to big pharma and say, Actually, you know, it costs a lot to make a drug, so they deserve all these profits, and that's that. Where where do you stand on this? So we just published just a couple of weeks ago a major research paper on this called "Price Hikes by Large Drug Companies Fail to Drive Medical Innovation." It's on the on the top of our homepage at freeop.org for people who check it out uh, near the time of that you you put out this podcast, and we go through that exact analysis. Of, okay, so if these big companies are raising prices. Are they? Are, are, is there a lot of innovation or even new drug development that's even less innovative or Me Too drugs? Are they actually developing new drugs that are reaching patients as a result of all that money that they're making from raising prices on older drugs? And the answer is no, they're not actually. The R&D productivity of large pharmaceutical companies is terrible. And it's, it's a startups, it's a smaller biotechs that are out there developing the new medicines that eventually like the Pfizer's and the Merck's of the world are, are buying up. And, uh, and, and and delivering. So, you know, we often talk about the Pfizer COVID vaccine. Well, the Pfizer COVID vaccine wasn't developed by Pfizer. It was developed by a German startup called BioNTech that Pfizer then effectively acquired because this small German company is like, well, we don't know how to navigate the U.S. market and the U.S. regulatory hurdles. We'll have Pfizer do that. Well, that's not a, I mean, that's a business model of a kind, but that's not about markets. That's about Pfizer's connections with the government, Right which this small German startup didn't have. So this idea that somehow Pfizer is some innovative company that we got to like bow down to because they delivered a COVID vaccine, complete opposite. They didn't d- develop the vaccine, BioNTech did. They just happened to be the, the people who had a lot of money to, and a lot of connections to take that product and, and, and put it in the US market. So this is what the large companies do is they actually benefit from the fact that the FDA has made drug development so expensive, because if drug development is really expensive, startups can't afford, cannot afford to go through the whole FDA process without selling their body parts, metaphorically, to the big companies. And so that is the system we have. We have a system where all the innovation is happening at small, unprofitable companies funded by venture capital and, and investment funds. And those companies, when they finally develop a, a drug that gets through kind of clinical trials in phase two, say, and deliver some good data, then the big companies with their hundreds of millions of dollars swoop in to say, hey, let's buy this product so that we can actually 
do the expensive trials, which are the phase threes and all the sales and marketing, you know, send the pizzas and the, and the cheap pens to you doctors. And that's what, that's, that's how they, that's what, that's their value add for the pro the process. And we're not even talking about the, the tens of billions of dollars that the NIH and other government agencies around the world spend to actually identify these genetic targets that the drug companies then, the startup drug companies then um, use to, to, to develop molecules. So all that to say, uh, the, 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 the big drug companies, mo- many of which, in fact, most of which are not actually U.S.-based anymore, they're based in places like Ireland and Switzerland and France and Germany and Japan, uh, those companies are, uh, are, are financial engineers more than they are innovators. And, and yes, it's interesting because as you, as you pointed out, the left likes to talk about the drug companies because they are for profit when they ignore the rest. And we should identify one of the things you hear a lot of the pro indus- pharma industry people say as well, why should we care about high drug pricing? Drug, drug spending is only about 10 to 15% of what we overall spend on healthcare. We should care much more about doctor physician spending which is like 20 plus percent and hospital spending, which is like 35 percent. Pharma is not a big, a big driver of our overall, overall healthcare spending. Well, it is a big driver. It's a third biggest driver. And so we should care about it. But we should also care about these other pieces, the, the hospitals and the physicians, side, particularly specialty physician care, where a lot of the real disparities are in terms of the cost of care in the U.S. versus other places. Think about specialty, you know, specialty, particularly on the surgical side. That's a, a real disparity between the U.S. and other countries. But yes, but we do pay, pay too much for drugs, especially when you consider the fact that 90% of all prescriptions for drugs in the U.S. are generic. And so we have a crazy situation today where biotech drugs or biologic drugs, so for the, you know, again, for people who've been to medical school, the, the difference between a biologic drug and a small molecule, biologic drugs are engineered proteins that are, that are harvested from uh, mammalian cell lines compared to a small molecule drug, which is synthesized in a chemical chemistry lab, um, those large molecules, those proteins, they're regulated by a completely different part of the, the code in terms of Congress. So they don't really have, you don't have generics in the same way that you do for small molecules. The end result is today, half of all spending on pharmaceuticals in the United States is biologic drugs. Can you guess, Aaron, what percentage of prescriptions in the US are for these uh, biologic drugs? Probably very low. I guess. Throw out a number. What percentage of all prescription in the U.S. do you think are for biologic drugs? Drugs like Humira, drugs like Avastin? 5%? 0.4%. Wow. So 0.4% of all prescriptions in the U.S. are for drugs that generate 50% of all spending in the U.S. Because with a small molecule drug, with a drug like Lipitor, Lipitor eventually the patent runs out and we get generic atorvastatin and effectively patients get this amazing cholesterol lowering drug for almost nothing. That is how the pharmaceutical industry is supposed to work. We say, you know what, we'll accept you making your 20 billion a year on Lipitor because eventually the patents will run out and we'll get that drug for free. It'll be a public good. And, and Americans by, by and large are willing to accept that trade. In the biologics world, we don't have that trade. You know, for these these fancy new immuno-oncology treatments where it's like an engineered, you know, T-cell treatment, like what are you going to do? There's no generic for that. And so that's going to be a monopoly under our current system forever. And those companies can increase the prices of those drugs 15 20% a year forever. People are not going to put up with that. That's the situation that, again, a lot of people on the left are not paying attention to because they're, they're, they're worried about, you know, drug prices overall. If you actually 
have a much more targeted approach and say, okay, where is the real problem with high drug prices? Where the biggest problems are, are with these situations where we don't have the ability to have a true generic. And the reason we don't have the ability to have a true, true generic is not technological. It's not engineering or science. It's because Congress and the FDA have made it effectively impossible, and the patent system has made it effectively impossible to have a true generic competitor. And that's what we've got to fix. Ovik, where does Bitcoin fit into all this? Bitcoin fits into this in terms of, in particular, what happens if we don't solve the healthcare problem. So if we don't solve the, the high cost of healthcare in such a way that the debt goes from $30 trillion to $50 trillion to $100 trillion. And by the way, you know, I'm an old guy now at this point in my life. I'm a middle-aged guy. You're still young, Aaron. You know, think about it from your standpoint of when you're, you know, in your 50s and 60s or when your kids are adults, right? So 20, 30 years from now may seem like forever. Like, who cares? But my kids are young. My kids are six and five. So we're talking about basically the majority of their adult life. 20, 30 years from now is the majority of their adult life going forward, right? Like when they're, we're talking about when they're 25, when they're 35, and their future after that. We're going to be talking about a time when the U.S. federal debt, if we do nothing, is 50, 70, 100 trillion dollars. Do you know what the total wealth of the world is in terms of, you know, financial assets like money and stocks and real estate and things like that? Can you guess? Like how much money is there in the world? I have no idea. $250 trillion, according to Credit Suisse, which which measures this every year. So there's $250 trillion in the world. So when the US debt is $100 trillion, we're basically asking the rest of the world to lend about you know almost half of what the rest of the world owns to the US to finance our debt. It's not going to happen. There, as, as Margaret Thatcher famously put it, eventually you run out of other people's money. And how does that play out? So how does how does a fiscal crisis happen for the U.S.? You know, we haven't experienced one like you know the Greece-style fiscal crisis or a Weimar Germany-style fiscal crisis. So you know, in our certainly in our lifetimes, there's been nothing like that. So we have no. It's a, it's very hard for us to imagine how a fiscal crisis might unfold. We're the biggest country in the world, biggest economy, I mean, the biggest economy in the world, richest country in the world. Surely we should be able to borrow money as long as we want. Like no, no. Actually, we're already seeing the canaries in the coal mine of the rest of the world not lending us the money we need to finance our debts. And so normally in financial markets, if the rest of the world doesn't want to lend us the money, enough money to finance our debts, the way the signal that you see is higher interest rates. So kind of like when you have a poor credit history, your credit cards and your mortgage rates go up because the banks look at you as a higher default risk. And so they they charge you a higher interest rate to basically protect themselves from the risk that you might not pay them back. Similarly, the way the treasury bond market works is if there's not enough demand for treasury bonds, meaning people don't want to lend money to the US, the way that ends up being reflected in the bond markets is in higher interest rates because the rest of the world, those investors say, you know what? I'm not going to lend money to the US. I'm not going to buy those treasury bonds because what if the US doesn't pay me back? And it doesn't, it's not a binary choice. It can be like 100 people may, people may want to lend money to the U.S. today, and maybe tomorrow it's 90 people, right? So it can be a gradual decrement in the, in the, 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 the demand for treasury bonds. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that gradual decline in the attractiveness of treasury bonds. What has the U.S. government done in response? The U.S. government response has 
created money out of thin air. The Federal Reserve has created U.S. dollars out of thin air to soak up, buy up those excess treasury bonds that the marketplace is not buying. That's how they keep interest rates low. So when you read in the newspaper, the Federal Reserve decided to keep interest rates at you know 4% or 2% or 5% or whatever the number is at that particular time of, of the year. The way they're dictating what the interest rates are is by printing money out of thin air and soaking up the excess supply of treasury bonds that they're issuing to borrow money and and basically using that as a form of price controls of saying we're going to we're going to decide that the interest rate for federal reserve for for treasury bonds is 2% by buying these excess bonds to suppress the natural interest rate which might be a lot higher so what does that do if you print a lot of money out of thin air to to soak up all that excess debt that that you can't lend out or you can't, or you can't borrow that increases the supply of U.S. dollars in the economy. Now, if the economy stays the same size, but you have, say, twice as many U.S. dollars in circulation, what does that mean? That means each dollar you own is worth half of what it was before. That's called inflation. Because when you go to the grocery store, your, your groceries cost double. That's what that is. So inflation is, is, is effectively an effect of the supply of money relative to the so- size of the economy. And so what happened in Weimar, Germany? What's happened in many of the financial collapses in, throughout history? It's this very fact. So in Weimar, Germany, what happened is Germany was paying off the reparations from World War I, and it didn't have the money to do so because not only was, was Germany a, 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 a country that had been destroyed by World War I, but the, the allied powers were occupying the wealthy industrialized parts of Germany where the coal and the steel was produced. So they couldn't generate the income or the economic performance to, 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 to pay off those debts. And so they spiraled in the situation where they basically said, well, we can't pay the debt, so what are we going to do? We're going to pr- pr- print more marks, uh, the, the then German currency, to, to pay off these debts. And, and, and that worked for a while, but then eventually each of those marks was, wor- wor- the, uh, uh, was worth a lot less and the end result was uh, hyperinflation, which led to the rise of Hitler. And, and so this is a very dangerous situation. So how does this all relate to Bitcoin? You may be wondering, okay, what does it, have, does it have to do with Bitcoin? Well, the whole idea of Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is designed to be a way for ordinary people to not be at the mercy of governments that make these choices. So Bitcoin is designed to be a currency that you can use or store, particularly you can store your money. And the way gold, a lot of people traditionally would say, I'm going to own gold because gold retains its value in, in, in societies where inflation is running out of control. Bitcoin is a version of gold that, unlike gold, where you have to store it in a safe or at a bank, Bitcoin is electronic and it can be stored through cryptography. And so if I want to send, if I want to save money in Bitcoin, wh- whose supply is fixed at 21 million and can never be increased, that's going to retain its value in a world in which the quantity of dollars in circulation, the quantity of euros in circulation is going to massively increase. And so I, I wrote an article for National Affairs called Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning, which walks through a lot of its logic because we can't go through the whole thing in, in, this, in this talk or in this podcast that if you're interested in this topic, you should read. And the, and the basic point is that Bitcoin may seem to a lot of people today like a fad or like fake money or whatever. But it's a real thing, just like the internet was a real thing 30 years ago. A lot of people said, I'll never use email to communicate with my patients. And, and here we are. 
right? And similarly, people might say, well, I never use Bitcoin to, to, to save money or, or, or to use it as a financial asset. Very soon, people are going are gonna to feel the same way about Bitcoin as they did about the internet 30 years ago. You sound very pessimistic. <laughs> Can you give us something to be optimistic about with the U.S. healthcare system? Where do you see things going well in the future? Yeah, you know, I would say that I'm both pessimistic and optimistic at the same time. We've talked about the pessimistic part, which is that we have very, very serious problems that are, I think, a lot worse. Our problems are a lot worse than most people appreciate, even people within the healthcare system who know vaguely that healthcare is too expensive. They know vaguely that we have a debt. I think people don't realize how close to the precipice we are today. Uh, and that's the, the, the pessimistic part that, you, that you're detecting. The optimistic part is that we actually have ways to solve these problems. So the, the, the health reform plan that we've described is actually a bill that's been introduced in the House and the Senate called the Fair Care Act. There are ways to actually take this aircraft carrier, this, this, this battleship, and turn it gradually around so that we, year after year, you, you're not going to dig yourself out of this hole by snapping your fingers. You have to do it step by step. It's a marathon. You know, how do you train for a marathon? You, you know, you run short, you run a mile and you run two miles and you run five miles and you run 10 miles. It's like that. You know, that's, that's the way we're going to get out of this crisis. So there's a way to do it. But what we really need is more people to be, to understand how dangerous the situation is today so that we then take on the solutions that we need. It's kind of the way I'd analogize it is, you know, if you've been, if you're a physician, you, you've had patients where you say to them, Hey, your A1C is nine, you know, your blood pressure is this, you've got to really diet, you've got to start w taking walks, you've got to exercise, and they don't do it. And eventually they have diabetic retinopathy. And I told you so is not satisfying, right? Because you're trying to get them uh, to a better place. And it's, it's kind of similar to that where, um, you know, the solutions are there. It's just we have to have that willpower to actually uh, do something about it. And so these are not impossible problems to solve. We just have to rally uh, to solve them. And I think what would be really amazing is if the physician community took the leadership there. So for so many years, the, the physician community, in my view, has been just very whiny and entitled and had this view of, woe is me. I, 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 I don't make a million dollars. I only make 500,000. You know, I have to argue with insurance companies. Patients come into my office and they expect, you know, the, you know, the kind of service they get from Uber, and that's ridiculous. And then there's just all sorts of complaints. And I think if physicians were to say, you know what, our healthcare system is ridiculous. We are charging too much for, for patients. We, do, we are going bankrupt. And if we take the leadership as physicians to say, you know, we're going to be the tip of the spear in solving this problem. We're going to take the initiative to say, you know what, we can still make enough money in a system that's fair to the taxpayer, fair to our kids, fair, fair to our grandkids who are going to be paying this debt. We can make an enormous amount of progress. Physicians can play such an incredible role in leading the country to a better healthcare system. And again, the solutions are out there. These are not things where the solutions are impossible. So that's the optimistic side, is that the ideas, the idea side, we've got figured out. We just need the willpower to actually enact those solutions. On that note, Ovik Roy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.